Welcome to BA in Science. I'm Maggie. That's Brenna. Hi. And we can't wait to tell you all about a badass human who also happened to do science. Actually, we've got two BAs this week in our second to last episode of the season, and I'm really excited about it. I've alluded to this before, but I'm a bit of an expert on our entire topic this week, and like more so than on other topics that I've had to research this season, because I mean, I, I'm good at researching, but there, a lot of this stuff about today's episode and next week's episode, I knew out of my own head. So that's kind of cool. It's going to be a lot of fun. Let's deal with our weekly business before we get started. Please remember that wherever you listen, you should rate, review, subscribe, favorite, like, or whatever so that other people can find us and so you get notified when our new shows come out because our season is ending and you're going to want to know when the next season starts, which will be sometime in September of this year. So that's our next, that's the next time you're going to hear from us. You're going to want to be notified. If you have something to tell us, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at BA and Science. You can also email us at science at gmail.com and if you're missing us over the summer because of course you will you should go over to patreon and subscribe there because there's bonus content and episodes and all that other kind of stuff and it's awesome you don't want to miss out on that so do we have any addendums from last week before we get started on our ba i don't I don't either. I didn't have any guesses this week. Maybe people just thought it was so obvious that they didn't need to guess, but I don't, I don't know, but I don't have any, uh, I don't have any guesses. So I guess we'll just take a quick break and then get right into it. So our two BAs today are the very definition of badass humans who also happen to do science. We're going to approach this a little bit differently today than we usually do since it's our season finale and we like to kind of mix it up sometimes. We're doing a, a, just like a little bit different. First, I'm going to let Brenna give you our quote and tell mm -hmm. us who we're talking about. And then I'll kind of explain how we divided the episode because there's kind of a lot to cover and we, I just, I thought this would be a good way to divide it. So what's our quote? We don't get along very well together on a personal level. In 25 years, we've known each other. We've never had dinner alone together. We do not choose to hang out if we don't have to be in proximity. And yet, there's a couple of things that happen, and they're pretty remarkable. We challenge each other. We push each other to do better. We pick each other other's ideas apart. And there's a real integrity to that process, as annoying as it might be on the temporal level. I love that quote, and I cannot think of a single better thing that perfectly sums up the two people we are talking about today. Um, yeah, that was a quote from one of our two BAs today, and that would be Adam Savage, who you may or may not know who that is, but he is one of the two guys in the show Mythbusters. That's right. Who's the other guy? Jamie Heineman. That's right. We are covering the Mythbusters, and I am so excited. So here's the plan. I'm going to talk about Adam Savage and his life, his life up until Mythbusters. And then Brennan's going to jump in with Jamie's life up until Mythbusters, because for both of them, Mythbusters kind of was a pivotal moment in their careers in some ways. And then we'll take a break like we do. And then Brennan is going to continue with Jamie's story. And then I'm going to finish up the rest of Adam's story. Now, instead of doing a legacy segment today, though, because you know that our season finales are always two-parters, 
Our final segment today is not legacy. It's a setup for next week's episode. I'm going to talk you through kind of how the show goes. If you've never seen Mythbusters, first of all, why? What are you doing? Find it right now and watch all the episodes because I have I have seen every episode and it's worth it. Second, I just want to kind of give a, a backdrop for what we're going to be talking about next week and it's best done today. So I'm very excited about my BA this week though because of the two Mythbusters, Adam has always been my favorite and there's not a good reason. It's not that he's better or there's, there is no good reason except that I suspect it has to do with the way he approaches science, but we'll kind of get into that later and maybe really later, like maybe even next episode, but we'll see. For today, I'm going to cover his life story. So Adam Savage was born in New York City in 1967. He actually comes from, from a long line of BAs. His maternal grandfather was, was Cushman Hogginson, which is thrilling. I mean, the name doesn't mean anything. It's a cool name, but, you know, and, and it didn't mean anything to me. But he was a pioneer in cancer treatment and advocated for radical mastectomies as the best hmm. hope for curing breast cancer. And not radical as in, like, outrageous. That's <laughs> radical. It's a radical idea. No. Or also that's, not. That's totally rad. That's totally rad because it's not. But radical in that he would remove the breast, the lymph node, and part of the chest wall because radical means root and that's a radical. That's the pulling mm-hmm. it out by the root. Makes sense. Anyone who knows someone who has lived through breast cancer or even um, died of breast cancer also probably knows that a mastectomy was part of the treatment plan. They're very common and they can be very effective. They don't do very many radical mastectomies today because the Mm -hmm. cancer, you usually catch it before the cancer gets to the chest wall, Mm -hmm. but they still do perform that procedure as necessary. So that's Adam's grandfather. Now his parents were Karen Hogginson Savage and she was a psychotherapist as in the kind of person where you go to their office, you talk about stuff as your mm-hmm. form of therapy, like the, the typical therapy ideas. That's what she did. Now, his dad is so cool. His dad was Whitney Lee Savage. Whitney Lee was probably a cool dad. He had built an art studio in the garage of their home because Adam describes his father as, quote, a painter, animator, filmmaker, and illustrator, which is a gross understatement. His dad worked on Sesame Street. Mm, so now you and I watched Sesame Street and I did. Your I don't think ever... I watched it as much as you. I think you've watched it enough. If you saw the segments that he had worked on, you would recognize them. Remember where there would be like a disembodied hand, like drawing something really amazing. Mm-mm. Okay. Some of you might have like a vague memory of that. If you look it up and just even see a screenshot it will bring back all sorts of like childhood memories for you, most of you who are, oh, you know, Gen Y, millennials, maybe even Gen X a little bit. Anyway, those segments, that was Whitney Lee's work. So he did those kind of, um, well, insert segments in Sesame Street. He's also a well-known realist painter, and his work is in permanent collections of many notable museums, including the Smithsonian American Art Museum. He also directed a short film called Mickey Mouse in Vietnam, which was an anti-war film lasting one minute, but I watched it and wow, did he pack a lot in that one (laughs) minute. So look it up if you're curious. We in no way endorse anything that's in it, nor do we 
decry any of it. I just wanted to present it to you as a thing that this man did. <laughs> Fun fact about Whitney Lee, he was well known to point the tip of his paintbrushes. And if you remember from our radium lick girls, it. yeah, he would lick it like a la, you know, a la the radium girls. Mm -hmm. But the difference is here that the paint wasn't radioactive, but it mm -hmm. did probably have other horrible chemicals in it. So, mm -hmm. you know. So Adam also has two older brothers and two older sisters from his parents' previous marriages. They were married to other people before they mm. married each other and they mm -hmm. had kids from those. And then Adam also has a younger sister. So it was a full house, kind of a Brady Bunch. I think he even referred to it as that in an interview that I read. Now, fun fact about Adam's little sis, she was born at home, like in their apartment in New York. Oh, no. Yeah. So Karen's parents, his mom's parents were supposed to pick up Adam when it was time for little sis to arrive, but they didn't. And so Karen called a neighbor named Jean and she took Adam downstairs. So he was like not under oh, okay. the whole process, right? Jean's full name is Jean Steig, wife of William Steig. And I didn't know who this was either, but he's an incredibly famous cartoonist who did work for the New Yorker and was oh. like, one of Adam's really good friends. So hmm. yeah. So those of you who are in the know about cartoons and, you know, the New Yorker and all that, William Steig's wife watched Adam while his younger sister was being born, which is hmm. kind of rad. And Adam has no memory of the whole, you know, he just remembers hanging out with Jean that day. That's all he remembers, which is probably for the best. That's probably true. Yeah. So that's his family. Um, he grew up in North Terrytown, New York, which isn't immediately cool, but the town was renamed Sleepy Hollow in 1996. Oh. Yeah. And Adam graduated from Sleepy Hollow High School in 1985, which is immediately cool. So yes. it was already Sleepy Hollow High School. They renamed the town. There you go. I see. In addition to living in an unconventional place, name, unconventionally named place there, his childhood was unconventional as well. He was a child actor for a while. So he would voice characters that his dad drew for the Sesame Street inserts that I talked about. Uh, perhaps he's best known outside of Mythbusters in terms of acting appearances for being Mr. Whipple's stock boy Jimmy in a Charmin commercial. Hmm. It's raining, like leaking water on the Charmin. And it's just, anyway, you can find that commercial. That was his like claimed fame before then. Hmm. He was also in a Billy Joel music video. So, you know, he did some stuff. Yeah, he did some stuff. Okay. Uh, but in other ways, he was an entirely run-of-the-mill kid. Uh, when he was 12, his parents got cable and Adam immediately watched a lot of questionable content, like you do when you're 12. He found a George Carlin special on a brand new channel called HBO, wherein George Carlin lists the seven words you never say on television. Great. Mr. Carlin says them a lot in that particular special, and then he adds 25 more words to that list. Mm, okay. Not a single one of them is repeatable here because it's a family-friendly podcast. <laughs> but Adam, remember, 12-year-old boy, was absolutely enthralled and watched the special because they didn't have DVR, you know. So he just watched it every time it was on over the course of a month. And mm -hmm. then he wrote detailed and, cro and like, cross-referenced lists of the bad words to make sure he didn't miss any. He's, wow. Yeah, he's a collector. He's a completionist. And that's gonna, that is going to go with him through his life. He is very much a collector. Okay. 
as a kid, Adam loved Casey Kasem and spent weekends building Lego and listening to American Top 40. He described himself as always being a maker, Lego being a perfect medium in which to experiment with making stuff. And for a while, he wanted to be a Lego design, like work for Lego in their design department. Because he just liked to make stuff. So, because once when he was 11 or 12, he found a refrigerator box and hauled it home. Okay. And he made a spaceship out of it and started in his bedroom closet. Because, of course, that's what you do. Like, who didn't make a rocket ship out of a refrigerator? Mm, I'm pretty sure ours was, like, our home because we were Little House on the Prairie and Laura and... We were, but that means that we, because we were girls. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? So had we been boys, it would have been a rocket. Probably. So he went, he's storing it in this guest bedroom closet, and he went so far as to paint, without permission, paint the doors black and, like, add white stars and string Christmas lights to make it look like real space. To the closet? Yeah, in the closet, yeah. Oh, he didn't paint the rocket, he painted the door. Of the closet on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> Black too. Oh boy. Sure, sure did. He sure did. Uh, several years after that, he used cardboard to make a life-sized guy, just a dude, sitting in a desk. And there are pictures of it, and it is wild. I'll try to p- find one to post. But there, Wait, did he ever get in trouble for painting the door black? I don't think. Listen, his dad was an artist, and so... When, and an anti-Vietnam guy. All right, never mind. So when, but when Adam did something in the name of making or creating, his dad was actually pretty supportive of it. Well, because there was one time the very so first hippies. He, yeah. Well, the very okay. first thing he ever made was Adam ever made was this little cardboard teddy bear. It, it doesn't matter, but he used his dad's exacto knives essentially to make uh-huh. it, and he was not supposed to touch those. And so, but instead of getting in trouble, because his dad saw he wasn't screwing around, he was like making something. He didn't get in trouble. His dad just like taught him more about how to do that thing. So I suspect that the black paint on the inside of the guest bedroom closet was not as big a deal as it would be in some other houses. Hmm. So. We would have been like shut in that closet for forever. Forever oh, you and ever. paint my closet door? Go live there. We, yes, that's where we would reside. You can send my mail there and all of my snacks. <laughs> okay, Mom, you wouldn't have been that awful, but you might have made us hang out in there for a bit. We would have been in such trouble. We would have been in so much trouble. So much trouble. So, yeah, so then he, several years later, he made, like, a life-size guy out of cardboard. Uh, when he was in high school, he and his dad made a suit of armor out of aluminum roof flashing. And he, of course, wore it to school. And then he suffered from heat exhaustion and passed out during math class. I mean, if you're going to pass out, math class is the place to do it. Let's be honest. You know what? Nobody asked you. I'm just saying. Okay. Well, he woke up in the nurse's office and the first thing he asked is, hey, where's my armor? So we know where his priorities were. But he was always making something. And sometimes he says himself that what he made was mistakes. He would be overzealous in his attempts to make things, so he would ruin drill bits and wreck project because he was notoriously and admittedly impatient and sometimes reckless. 
Uh, for instance, on his 18th birthday, he and a friend hopped a couple of fences, ignored some no trespassing and no swimming signs, and went for a dip in the Hudson River. Ooh. I know, right? So <laughs> Adam dives in, and he hits his head on a rock, and he broke his neck. Huh? <gasps> yeah. What? He thought he had just hit his head, but after a minute or two, he realized something was wrong. So he, like, re-hops the fences and makes his way back home and goes to the doctor. And he found that there was a chip in his seventh vertebra. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So since he had hit this rock head on, it was a compression injury, not a, like, snappy injury. But he could have broken his like actually like snapped his spine if it had gone differently oh so, my gosh yeah well and if that's not enough too and this is nothing that's his fault but adam also deals with um a congenital condition where his ears have structural problems so he gets a lot of ear infections and it, and if they're not it's not dealt with it can lead to meningitis or facial paralysis hmm. so he wears hearing aids all the time and he's had surgeries to correct the issues uh, oh and one other cool thing that I didn't know where to put it, but I'm putting it here. He has a phobia, actual phobia that he has had tried hypnotism for to cure of bees. Hmm. Yeah. And I don't know why. It didn't say why he has this fear of bees. He just does. I don't know if he was stung. I don't know if he was attacked. I don't know. Hmm. Phobia of bees. Interesting. So let's get now into his education and early work experience. His education will be quick because he graduated high school, as I mentioned, and he did not go to college. Okay. By the time he was 19, because he was like done being a child actor and he was, he was really into making. So by the time he was 19, making stuff was his focus. And one of his first jobs that he had was a job in Manhattan at a graphic design company. And he worked there for a short time. Then in 1990, a friend of his asked Adam to move in with him, share living costs, and this friend happened to live in San Francisco. So Adam moves out to the West Coast, and kind of that's where he basically made his adult life. In San Francisco, Adam got involved in the theater world, live theater, working as an assistant stage manager for an experimental theater company. This job is where he acquired a lot of amazing and important skills, including carpentry, set design, costuming, casting, and mold making, other stuff. These are all things that he would use later in life. So Adam kind of became well-known around the theater circuit, and eventually his work was brought to the attention of a guy named James Heineman. Now, Brent is going to tell us more about him, but I will tell you that Jamie, he goes by Jamie, um, he ran an effects house for Colossal Pictures, and which was a film company. They did like commercials and stuff. Jamie hired Adam to work for him, and he worked there for about four years. And Adam said, I read in, it was, it's Adam's autobiography, Everything's a Hammer. He's, it's not really an autobiography. It's autobiographical, but it's more about, I don't know. It, it was, it was good. It, I wouldn't call it a strict autobiography though, but Adam credits these years with Jamie as the time when he kind of learned his that his own personal passions were for model making and practical effects, which is also going to be important. Adam said that Jamie helped him grow as a maker more than any single person before or since. So while he recognizes that they're not like besties, mm -hmm. he he's I really admire his maturity and professionalism to say that like, yeah, we're not friends, but he's a really influential guy in my life. So I think that's cool. Yeah. Okay, in 1997, Adam heard that a little company called 
Industrial Lights and Magic, or ILM was hiring. And in case you're fuzzy on the details, ILM was founded by George Lucas to do the effects for the OG Star Wars A New Hope film. Mm -hmm. So Adam wants to, like, Star Wars was, besides Lego, Star Wars was his obsession. And I would say remain so to this day. I don't know if he would say so, but I would based on what I've seen. So Adam called the guy in charge there every week for three months until he got hired. He called ILM heaven for a model maker, which obviously, you know, while he was there, he worked on Star Wars Episode One: Phantom Menace, Space Cowboys, AI, Terminator 3, Galaxy Quest, commercials, just like all kinds of things. He did a ton of work at ILM. And he worked there very happily for, I think, four or five years. And then a professional colleague, a voice from the past, called him up and said, hey, you want to do this new show with me? And that's where I'm going to stop. So I'm going to turn it over to Bruna so she can bring us up to speed on James Jamie Heineman and his life up until, up until Mythbusters. Okay. So James Franklin Heineman was born September 25th, 1956. So he's like 66 years old right now. Um, he was born in Marshall, Michigan. Okay, fun fact about Marshall, Michigan. I, for a short time, went to a church in Marshall when I was in college. And I'm pretty sure mom and dad also went to church with me during like parents weekend or something over to Marshall. Oh my god. I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, mom and dad. I think those were those were the early freshman days, you know. Remember those? But I have heard of Marshall, obviously, because I went to church there. But it's kind of in the middle of nowhere, Michigan. It's um, even in 2020, the census had the population at 6,822 people. That's tiny. It's tiny. Yeah. That's smaller than some high schools. I know. So Jamie was born there, but he actually grew up on a farm in Columbus, Indiana, which appears to be like less than an hour from Indianapolis. His mother was a graduate librarian at Indiana University. And so he spent a lot of time on IU's campus um, as he was growing up. So he graduated from Columbus North High School in 1974 and then headed off to college at Indiana University. I really don't know too much else about his childhood, um, but I did find this quote. I was a problematic kid, to be sure. I left home when I was 14 and hitchhiked all over the country, which major yikes. But I don't know. It was 1970. It was a different time. I'm sorry. The second you say hitchhike, all I think is, oh, you want to be murdered. Like, sorry, that's all I can think. Well, it was 1970. I also read somewhere that at the age of 15, I don't know if this was while he was hitchhiking all over or maybe after he came back, he owned and ran a small pet shop at the mall. Which, again, like, were child labor laws a thing? Like, did he actually own it? Like, one place that he ran it, one place that he owned it. I just have a lot of questions and no answers for you. But I just feel like that's a really random thing to run or own or both at the age of 15. But mm. I guess, you know, if you've hitchhiked across the country, like, I don't know. There isn't just- anything oh. weird after that, I think. So, 1974, uh, as I said, he goes to IU and he got his degree in Russian linguistics and if you're thinking you misunderstood me because we are a podcast about scientists and Russian linguistics as far as you know doesn't include chemistry and physics well it involves metaphysics but that's not like a 
but so in actual science yeah like, sorry don't at me if you're a metaphysicist that's not metaphysicists won't at you and they won't listen to this podcast either Fair. that's true um i mean because it is the russians i mean the russians are all they're all metaphysicists anyway <laughs> they're all nihilist metaphysicists yeah, actually yeah. but um but anyway like what a choice of major though like okay so remember we talked about earlier this season i called up mom's like hey i'm switching my major from history to chemistry yeah can you imagine though if i had called her to say hey i'm switching from history to russian linguistics she would have hung up on you probably not just you know you're not she would have she would have hung up on you like i can't even (laughs) instead of saying i'll see you in four years for your graduation she'd probably be like you're never graduating goodbye goodbye i feel like Uh, though because jamie's mom was a graduate librarian yeah she was probably like neat so great yeah now before i get us to that place that makes more sense talking about jamie in relation to a show about science myths uh, I want to tell you about all the other jobs that I have seen or read associated with Jamie. There are a these lot. These are from like a few different sources. And again, I can't really confirm most of these. There's a few exceptions, but like most of these I can't actually confirm. Like, like I don't have, I mean, at least as I, as far as I could see, there was not like, there's not an autobiography. There's not like a book he's written. Like, I think there's he's not, a he's very private person. person. Yeah. So, um, but if they're all true, then like, wow. Okay. So. Because he is just the ultimate Renaissance man. Okay. Here we go. He was supposedly, allegedly, whatever, a dive master, a wilderness survival expert, a boat captain slash owner of like a sailboat diving charter business in the Virgin Islands. That one I can confirm. A linguist, an animal wrangler, a concrete inspector. I don't know. Okay. A chef and a librarian at the UN in Geneva. Which that one feels really far-fetched, but I don't know. That is so I read that somewhere. Honestly, none of those feel far-fetched. Again, because I, because as I mentioned, okay. I have watched every single episode of Mythbusters and n- none of that sounds outrageous to me. In fact, I mean, all I of that sounds If you're a tame. Russian linguist, maybe they need you to be in the library in the UN. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, I don't know. so one thing I can confirm, the one that I feel the most confident about is while he was running his charter business in the Virgin Islands, like the sailboat diving charter mm-hmm. Um, Jamie met a woman named Eileen Walsh, who's a science teacher, and that was in 1984, and in 1989, they got married and have been married ever since, and I just think it's cute that his wife's a science teacher of all things, you know? That is really cool. Yeah. That is really Um, cool. So what's next for a man who has done one of everything? Well, Jamie actually said this. At some point, I realized I had done all of these different things, and I thought I should become methodical about what I wanted to do for a living. Special effects was very creative it involved a variety of materials and processes processes working with variety of people and the work itself didn't just end up on somebody's shelf it ended up in a wider context and so this kind of begins jamie's long career in special effects so he started out as a shop assistant in the nyc area mm-hmm. but then he made his way out to san francisco um, and as a guy in special effects, he actually helped produce effects for 800 commercials, dozens of films, including Robocop and Arachnophobia. Now, mm-hmm. quick pause, because I have a bone to pick with Jamie and all the people who worked on Arachnophobia. Because when my husband was maybe like eight or nine, some adult in his family, I'm pretty sure it was his dad, so I'm mad at him too, let him watch Arachnophobia. That was a terrible idea. I have never seen it. I don't feel the need to see it. But what I do know about arachnophobia is that it is traumatizing to nine-year-old little boys. Because do you know who else to kill all the spiders in our house? Me. 
Yeah. Like, he'll call me down to his office to kill a little tiny spider that's, like, in his office. Hey, but Adam is afraid of bees. Sometimes he kills them himself. But, like, a lot of the times, if I'm a viable option, he's like, come kill the spider. And Okay, but can we talk about spiders for a second? Let's start with this. They have eight legs. Eight legs. Okay, I could kill spiders all day long. Like, they don't bother. Well, okay, take it back. If you tell me I have to kill a wolf spider, absolutely not. Like, the house is just the wolf spiders now at that point. Either burn it down or move out because it's not your house anymore. It's not your house. But, like... He doesn't even like, like, the little da- daddy long legs things. Like, those things are easy to smush and just get rid of, you know? But um, we get, so down here, we get all those Joro spiders, like the banana mm. spiders, whatever. And they get, like, all up in our landscaping in the fall. And my husband hates it. But he'll take the bugs, like, the bug killer, spray them all, and then, like, use a shovel to pull all the webs down and make sure they're all dead. But anyway, so he'll do it outside, but he does not like it. And he kind of, like, I may have seen him, like, run away a couple of times when it was still moving you know what I mean I get it though man they have okay so here's my thing though I don't do cockroaches like I cannot crunch them they're disgusting they're gooey they're they're the white oozy stuff that comes out when you smoke Mm -mm. no so he has to kill those that's that's a fair trade that's that's absolutely a fair trade but like a very unthanks Jamie for arachnophobia and your help in those special effects because they were obviously too real they were but on the plus side i think he made the commercial where it's the seven up machine that like shoots yeah yeah so that's pretty cool i don't think it i don't know if it balances out arachnophobia for you but it was a cool commercial i mean it doesn't it doesn't balance out for me but all right that's fine anyway after a long time working special effects jamie decided to found his own effects company called m5 Mm and m5 industries i think but the five m's are models machines miniatures manufacturing and magic wow yeah that was in 1996 but then as time moves forward computer generated special effects are taking off and so the business was starting to struggle and he's going to need to find something else to do so when Discovery is interested in Australian creator Peter Reese's idea for Tall Tales Are True and they're looking for a host, things take a turn for both Jamie and Adam. So we should probably take a break and get into how things changed. Yeah, great idea. Okay, Brenna, we need to take a minute to tell everybody about Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder. Yeah, we definitely do. It's an MCAT test prep program like no other. MCAT prep can be super expensive, but this is prepared by a group of passionate faculty who really want to keep costs low. The big thing about the program, though, is how good it is with really excellent concept explanations and visual learning, thousands of practice questions with explanations, and full MCAT practice tests. If you've ever looked into the MCAT, you've probably looked around for complete programs that are made by experts. These courses cost thousands of dollars, which make it super impractical for the average person. MCAT Ladder, though, has over 100 full scholarships available now for both self-paced programs you can start anytime, as well as for intensive and boot camp type programs with dates throughout the year. Right. The whole idea behind Proton Guru and the MCAT ladder is high quality MCAT prep that's accessible to more people, not just those who can afford thousands of dollars. So go on over to ProtonGuru.com and check out all the amazing stuff that's there. With MCAT ladder, it's all about reaching down to help others climb up, which is a very badass thing to do. Now, we are coming to the main event. 
Brenna has left us on the cliffhanger where Jamie is ready to do something new, kind of. Not entirely new, but use use his skills in a new way. So let's pick up where you left off. What's happening now? So as I mentioned right before our break, there was this idea for a show called, you know, Tall Tales Are True. And it was a show that was going to be about urban legends. And Jamie, I don't know, like, if he auditioned or got his name in con- for consideration. I don't really know. But Discovery agreed to a three-episode pilot season to kind of see what the response was. And one place I read, um, Jamie wasn't actually sure that it would be much more than that because he was like, I don't even know that many urban legends. So, like, whatever. Mm-hmm. But he was still willing to do it. And I read, again, kind of, I don't know, a lot of the stuff about Mythbusters now is archived. And so there's just, like, a lot of variation and kind of, Mm-hmm. how things started but somewhere someone along the way decided the show would be better if there were two hosts to kind of balance each other out instead of just one i actually have info on that like good info on that so i'll 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 fill you in on something that i found out about that okay on how it ended up with being both of them okay but jamie had worked well worked with adam obviously um as you talked about but um, they also had worked together on Robot Wars, where people made robots that battled it out in the ring. Did I you, love that show. I just want you to know. Did you read about? Bl- Do you know who Blendo is? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So I don't. I don't watch these things. Oh, okay. So, so maybe you can clear this up because one time, one place I said they said it was called Robot Wars. Somebody else said it was BattleBots. Are those like the same show or those it's different, different iterations of the same show? Okay, all right, fine. Yeah. Anyway, Blendo was a creation of Jamie and Adams, but it was so dangerous it basically like wasn't allowed to compete. One source described it as a saucer full of pikelets that crossed a lawnmower engine with a walk with sharp objects. And while I got a more enlightening description from another source, um, I read that Blendo was a robotic tiny terror with spinning blades and an inverted walk for a shell. Powered by a lawnmower engine, Blendo mowed through its opponents on the TV show Robot Wars with the ability to slice into the arena walls as well as its opponents, plus a tendency to hurl parts of its dismembered foes into the audience at high speeds. Blendo was twice withdrawn and awarded the title of co-champion after being deemed too dangerous for competition. Which, I'm not going to lie, it sounds pretty exhilarating. I've never watched any of those shows. But, like, I don't know. If dismembered robots are being hurled about, maybe I do want to watch. You are completely missing out by not watching BattleBots. Like, it's it's great. It's phenomenal. Okay, but also, also, let me just, let me just say this. What's going to happen when AI takes over... And realize that we were chopping them up with things like Blendo. It's just, it's not going to end. I'm sorry. I just, AI is just, just it's, stop. It's okay? yet another reason. Because to turn AI it off is going to find it. old clips of Robot Wars and BattleBots. And they're going to think that they're going to turn the tables on us. Yeah. Next thing you know, we're going to be getting pikelets strapped to us. And we're going to be fighting to the death in the arena, guys. It's I'm just going to be, you. it's going to be Hunger Games. Except with oh, people gosh. and robots are in charge. That's what it's, that's oh, what happens. Everyone needs to stop with the AI. Like students are starting to use AI to write their papers. Mm-hmm. And the AI is like fooling all of the systems that check for plagiarism. Just everyone stop. Everyone stop. I'm just, okay. Anyway. Anyway, huh, just, you know, 
just don't. Just don't. AI, okay. no. The end. Okay. Because, like, we've been not acting very nice to these machines. So, like, if they're vengeful, it ain't. It and ain't they will be vengeful. Us. Let me assure you, they will be vengeful. There's no if there. <sighs> okay. Uh, anyway, so they try out their pilot episodes, and I guess things just take off from there, and the show Mythbusters becomes a thing, and it ran from 2003 to 2016. Mm-hmm. And I was instructed by Maggie not to really talk about his time, Jamie's time on the show, or how the show went, because that's next week. Yes. But what I can do is give you an idea of like what he's been doing alongside and past Mythbusters, like after the show. Yeah. So as far as I can tell, M5, which is where they did a lot of the show's experiments, that M5 Industries that Jamie started up, right? I told you, well, he needed something to do because special effects mm-hmm. were kind of on the downturn with computer-generated stuff. But mm-hmm. um, as far as I can tell, M5 is still operating, and Jamie can use it for whatever creative purposes he deems fit because it's his. Mm-hmm. But I did see that during the Mythbusters era, he collaborated with both Villanova and the U.S. Office of Naval Research. And I mm-hmm. didn't find a lot on that, which isn't surprising because it's the U.S. Office of Naval Research. Yeah. And they're not trying to advertise. No. But I think he was working on things like blast-resistant armor, robotic camera systems, etc. On May 16, 2010, Villanova awarded him an honorary doctorate of engineering and he gave the commencement speech there. Which I'm guessing stemmed from his work he did at Villanova. Mm-hmm. So this is still while the show's going on. And then November 25th, 2011, he got another honorary doctorate from the University of Twenty Twenty. I don't know, in the Netherlands. Oh, okay. So that's kind of what I knew or found about, like, other things going on in his life besides Mythbusters. Mm-hmm. Then in February 2017, a university in Finland with a name that I'm not even attempting to pronounce, like, it's just, I'm not even, no. made him an honorary doctor of technology. The university, the initials for the university are um, L-U-T. Okay. So you can Google that, but it's a long mouthful of things that I'm not, I know. Sorry, Finland. It'll Finnish just be people. offensive if we try to do it. Yeah. So. You know what? We're just better off if I don't. Then they actually made him a professor of practice starting in November 2021. So the appointment is five years. So he's supposed to be lecturing through there through 2026. Now, I don't know if he goes there, if he like remotes in or whatever. I have no idea. But on November 18th, 2021, he gave his first lecture at LUT on prototypes. Oh, okay. Um, One other very, it's funny that you mentioned the 7-Up commercial where the soda was shooting stuff out. Mm -hmm. Um, Because one other very interesting thing I read about is the creation of the Sentry. So it was a project that he was working on kind of around the end of Mythbusters, mm-hmm. like the Mythbusters run. But essentially, like we all know, I mean, I used, I used to live in the Bay Area. We all know how devastating wildfires can be, especially in California. Mm-hmm. Um, they've been, they've had some really bad goes, uh, especially recently, it feels like. But Jamie lives out there, right? So mm-hmm. he's been out there for a long time. So he had the idea um, actually from uh, that soda shooting machine mm-hmm. For the century. So it's an unmanned tank. It's supplied with massive water tanks. And the idea, of course, being that the firefighters aren't in the machine, right, in the midst of a very serious blaze. Again, the robots are going to be really mad about that. But they can if still we can work. program the robots to feel good about helping humanity, we <laughs> might might just squeak. Oh, Some of us might just squeak by. You and I are going to be fine because we're out here saying, guys, be nice to the robots because when they become sentient, you aren't going any bit of that. They'll be like, you know what? Those two girls can stay. I mean, we'll be their slaves. 
obviously, because that's how that's what's going to happen. But they probably won't put us in arena, strap pikelets to us and make us fight to the death. I think that that's unlikely for the two of us at this okay, point. Okay, cool. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, if you have an unmanned tank, then you don't you don't have people going into the midst of a very serious blaze, but you can still kind of work on controlling the fire. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how much, because uh, the article I read was from, I think, 2018. So I'm not sure how much use or how far the century went, to be honest, because um, today UAVs, which are the unassisted aerial vehicles, are really the go-to for helping. I mean, we've all seen like the videos of like drones dropping all of like the chemicals onto the fires and trying mm-hmm. to help them i think they're more the go-to for helping combat wildfires without endangering lives but i don't know so if you are a firefighter or a person who knows a lot about wildfires you can let us know if unmanned tank-like systems going into the blaze and, and not, not just from the air you can let us know if that's a thing because yeah. at some point they do have to get like people in i mean they do have to do some stuff yeah in there to get the the fire under control right yeah. like they use all the uavs to try to contain and stop and kind of bring it down as much as they can but i do think mm-hmm. they have, at some point have to go in but anyway um so it feels like again he seems like a really private person so you can't find a whole lot about him but uh it feels like jamie's still out there working to solve problems and uses a very wide array of skills um to do that so that's what i know about jamie yeah, nice. Yeah, he is he is a very private person. So so I want to go back to the the beginning where you said that there were some sources like how did it get decided whatever. The way Adam tells it in his book was that Jamie had been asked to do this show called Mythbusters. It was going to be called Mythbusters, but he couldn't do it alone. He was said I can't do this by myself. And so Jamie's kind of like mentally reviewing like who if I worked with like who could I get? And he thought of Adam Oh, okay. And his quote was that he needed someone who was who was hammy, like because Adam's an absolute ham. Because uh-huh. now you have the perfect funny man, straight man duo. Mm, okay. And like Brenda did, like I'm not I'm not gonna spend too much time talking about the details of the show because I'm gonna spend an entire segment on that in our next episode. But Mythbusters was huge and it still has a following today. Part of the charm of the show is that Jamie and Adam are so different. And I'm going to talk more about this like later. Okay. But based on what Brenna told us and based on what I've already said about Adam, you can see there'd be a lot of times when Adam and Jamie didn't were very obviously were not getting along. And it mm-hmm. wasn't because it wasn't because they were dislikable people. It's just that they're so very, very different. Adam said this about how they work together. Quote, Jamie would often joke that if each of us had four hours to do a project, he'd spend three and a half of those hours drawing and planning out everything he needed to build something once, whereas I would spend almost no time planning, then try five different solutions until I found one that worked, and we'd both come to the same result in the same amount of time, which is true. So when you have two people who work with such diametrically opposed styles, of course there's going to be just in general friction there. And mm-hmm. I don't think it was ever personal. That's just what it was. But people love to watch that. People love to watch that kind of dynamic. And so much happened in the 14 seasons that the show lasted, and which is a long time for a show. Mm-hmm. And now Adam got to show off a lot of fun skills in the show, especially as the show grew. 
And I'm going to focus on some of the things that we got to see him develop because, again, he's a little bit more open about some things Mm -hmm. about himself than Jamie was. Mm -hmm. So the show started out as a lot of just straight science. It was physics thought experiments. It was, can you really do that with a car kind of stuff? But then there were episodes where they would take on Hollywood myths and movie myths and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And remember, Adam worked for ILM. So if there's anybody right. who could do movie myths, it would be him. And there are obviously there's too many and varied movie myths to mention here. But I want to focus on a couple because it tells us more about who Adam is as a person. And that's what today is about. Mm-hmm. I first want to talk about the Indiana Jones movie myths. And the Star Wars myths. Okay. Okay. So in the Indiana Jones episode, Adam and Jamie tested if you could disarm someone with a whip, a la Indiana Jones. Okay. Um, Is the crack of a whip really a sonic boom? Does it break the speed of sound? Okay. And could Indiana Jones outrun poison dart shooting blowguns while running away with the golden idol? Because you know how after he gets the idol and Raiders of the Lost right. and he's got to run and there's all the blow darts and he doesn't get hit. Like, could is that like legit? Okay. Mm-hmm. This is one of my personal favorite episodes because it like okay. the skills that it, that Adam's very niche skills that it highlights in the show are just amazing. So first we get to see him build this incredibly detailed scale model of the set where Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones did the temple run. Uh-huh. And then they made the life-size version. It was so, and, and they did the set dressing and everything. It looked just like the temple. Okay. Um, and so when you see him doing that, and then you see the model that he made, it's like, oh, I can tell. I can tell why you got to work at ILM because you're good. Okay. And if that wasn't cool enough, he made from scratch the whip used to te- test the whip myths. Why? Because he likes to make things and oh, he can. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, he used kangaroo leather and he says, don't I'm sorry, what? Kangaroo leather, leather? It's the strongest leather there is. Don't let anyone tell you different. That is a direct quote from Adam Savage. What? Okay. I didn't so even know kangaroo used, leather was a thing. It is. And he used it to make, he replicated the length and the size of the one that Dr. Jones would have had in the movies. Okay. So like we get to see him braiding and weaving and it was gorgeous when it was finished okay because he's he's a maker and he's very good at it so then they test all these myths and so incidentally like just as a side note here indy would survive the blow dart gauntlet Mm -hmm. oh you can disarm someone with a whip okay and the tip of a cracking whip does travel faster than the speed of sound creating a sonic boom so when you're hearing a whip crack, it is because that is a, that's a sonic boom. Wow. I know. And I loved the way that they did that was with high speed cameras and all that stuff. We're going to talk a lot more about all of that stuff next episode. Okay. But um, real quick fun fact before we talk about the Star Wars myths, the guy who helped them do the whip stuff. Yeah. And like learn those skills is the same guy who trained Harrison Ford to do the whip stunts in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. his advice though is don't worry about disarming somebody with a whip just go for their face that'll work every time well and i was like okay that's horrifying i mean it makes sense though it does make sense though okay so as i mentioned 
Adam is a huge Star Wars like fan doesn't even begin to touch how he feels about Star Wars okay and and they did a lot of Star Wars on the show which were fun and again I just want to focus on the ones where Adam's skills really shine because again we're driving the the point home that this guy is a maker so um these come from an episode called Star Wars 2 the myths strike back okay so they tried to figure out if you could actually dodge a stormtrooper blaster bolts fire like stormtrooper blaster fire Uh and if having the high ground in a lightsaber duel really makes a difference Mm. right because obi-wan kenobi's very famous line it's over i have the high ground is that true like necessarily you know and i just again side note because i'm a star wars nerd yeah i am i'm this kind of person he wasn't simply talking about the fact that he was up higher on the side of the mountain volcano he was talking about the fact that he had the moral high ground and it was Mm -hmm. there was there's more to that but yes fine if you want to take it literally we can test it and they did so first of all adam figures out using math and movie knowledge how fast a blaster bolt moves from the end of a stormtrooper's gun and i do want to mention here that while he did pass out in math class he always is down to do the math and show his work we constantly see on blueprint paper or scratch paper or whatever him writing out equations and doing math and getting the calculator and doing the calculations. He was hmm. always there for it. It's a math teacher's dream. I love it. And this and this myth was no exception. There was a lot of math involved in this. Okay. So then, because this is who they are, they set up a rebel ship passageway and went for it. They got these hmm. little balls and they put fins on them and they shot them at the same uh-huh you know, rate. And okay. uh, sadly, you cannot dodge mm-hmm. a blaster bolt, which means that all stormtroopers are just terrible shots. Ah, okay. So if you get if you get hit by one, it's more luck than anything else. Mm, okay. Well, they probably can't see very well. I, I mean, right. Those helmets didn't don't seem very conducive for like, I don't know. Periphery? I yeah. Mean, yeah. <laughs> okay. In the high ground myth, they needed a way to figure out the winner of a lightsaber duel accurately and efficiently right because that's it like who's gonna win the guy who's standing higher than the other guy or will it be the same like how will that work out Mm -hmm. so and this is this is the coolest thing this is one of the coolest things he ever did on the show adam fabricated suits of conductive copper fabric okay so you're covered head to toe and each one had a belt that would light up when a hit was scored well how would you make that light go off he also made lightsabers quote-unquote lightsabers with copper mesh and then okay. when the two copper fabrics come into contact, it completes a circuit lighting up the belts. Mm-hmm. It was so clever and worked perfectly. And it was just like, it was just like amazing. Hmm. But, and oh, and turns out that the high ground doesn't matter. Oh, okay. From a physical standpoint. Okay. From a like morality hero mythology standpoint, Obi-Wan was right. Anyway. Ah. But the coolest part, the best part of all of the Hollywood myth episodes for me is Adam's costumes. Adam loves a good costume. And so he will get fully in character for these myths. Oh, boy. He has a, like, replica Indiana Jones. Like, then he makes, and he's a cost, he is a cosplayer. Oh, Okay. So he that um, makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Oh, for it a makes, lot of doesn't it make so much sense? Yes. Like he is he's a phenomenal 
cosplay artist. If you Google Adam Savage cosplay, you will see pages and pages of pics of his creations. Okay. He's done Chewbacca. He um, has done a knight in full armor, like King Arthur, not like the math class, but like a, like a legitimate, you know, King Arthur. Uh-huh. He's done Star-Lord. He's done Ghostbusters, Hellboy, Knights of Ren, and more. Um, like I said, he has an Indiana Jones, a Han Solo. He has a full Stormtrooper. Um, okay. He did a he it's i think it i don't remember how long it took him years fifteen thousand dollars and years and years and years to do one costume a costume from alien which is amazing so like it's like all the nerd stuff yeah that's a lot of nerd stuff it's so much nerd stuff and he still (laughs) he still does a lot with cosplay like he goes to he goes to conventions and he'll dress up he usually goes though like fairly incognito because oh yeah he would be mobbed he's tremendously recognizable so if he's going you won't recognize him yeah and i like that mythbuster showed that side to him as well he got to cosplay a little bit there right Mm -hmm. um i do want to note that uh this is a side note here his days of hurting himself did not end after he almost broke his neck when he was 18 uh-huh. Uh, he's, he's ended up with stitches repeatedly and uh-huh. he would get hurt in other ways uh usually on the show and it and it was never like terribly serious like he let jamie okay. shoot him in the butt with a staple gun that was rigged to fire pennies why oh, well I'm... they were testing whether or not a penny at terminal velocity will kill you because if you drop it off the empire state building mm. it, yeah mm-hmm. and so they just rigged up a staple gun to shoot pennies and it, it turns out no it won't kill you Oh, he accidentally burned off half of his eyebrow. He broke his okay. hand, ironically, handling safety glass. Mm. He almost drowned testing an underwater car escape myth. And the moral of that story, he had to dive like a, a safety diver with him with air, but it was still like kind of a close call. Um, okay. and the thing there is that if your car goes underwater, uh-huh. stay in the part with the air as long as possible take a huge deep breath and wait for the car to completely submerge, then open uh-huh. the door and swim out. Because before before the car is submerged, you won't be able to get out. Okay, well. They proved that, they proved that, that would work. Terrifying, but okay, great. Yeah, horrible. So they took a lot of precaution so that truly horrible things wouldn't happen. Because remember, these guys worked on movies. Right. They knew how to do stunts, yeah, essentially, sure. safely. Um, but some things that they did were risky and things did happen. But most injuries were solved with stitches or maybe a, a, a cast, a small mm-hmm. cast now and again. Uh, but Mythbusters did not last forever, as Brenna told us. And Adams, right. again, is still doing a lot of stuff. Some of it's still Mythbusters related. He was the host of Mythbusters Junior, in which kids competed... Well, they weren't really competing. They were just completing various STEM challenges. And he was a mentor and and just like watching them make stuff, which was really cool. Okay. And he does a lot of work with various nonprofits. He established the Nation of Makers nonprofit. And their mission is, uh, this is from their website, quote, to build a society where everyone has access to the tools, technologies, experiences, and knowledge to make anything, which is cool. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Adam also makes various on-screen cameos and appearances, either as himself or playing a character. He hosted a podcast for a while. He has a YouTube channel. He just does a lot of things. Oh. He's he's kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. So that is what I have for you on Adam during MythBusters and beyond. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah. So two really interesting dudes who have lived 
fabulously interesting lives, worked with yes. incredibly interesting people, including each other. And <laughs> yes. and their show, before I say how I feel about their show, you all know that I love it. But I mean, like in terms of the it effect, felt obvious, yes. Yes. Let's take a break and then we'll talk a little bit about the show because that's what we're okay. really going to focus on next time. Okay. So usually we talk about our BA's legacy in this part of the show. But as we've mentioned repeatedly, we're doing things a little bit differently today. Because Adam and Jamie's legacy in large part is the Mythbusters show. I am going to go into a very broad overview of the show today. And then next week, we're going to get more in depth about the people and the science involved in the show. Okay. So, and the reason I'm doing it is because as we have all witnessed, Mythbusters is one if it is on i watch it i have seen hmm. every episode we have they're still in our dvr while i was writing my episodes i was watching them and enjoying oh them and the kids watch them i use them in my science classes because sometimes the science is so mm. on point and so so well explained that it mm -hmm. really helps to make a point so it is it's it's wonderful it's actually a good thing that I have seen every episode. And Brittany, you, you watched you watched one full episode before you we did this show, right? This episode, right? Correct. Okay, have you you've seen only one show from start to finish? Correct. I think from start to finish. I think like I've seen maybe a few bits and pieces other places, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's been pretty much just that. Okay, well then that's good because then we're going to be able to, we're going to get a really good perspective on the show because you've got me who apparently I'm a super fan and you who are practically new to it. So that's good. Okay. okay, so when the show started, it was Adam and Jamie dealing with folklore or cultural myths like can you lift yourself off the ground with if you have enough balloons? Yes. Uh, can you turn your car into a rocket by strapping what's essentially a missile to it? No. Um, occasionally they would have a folklorist come on to talk about where the story came from and how it originated and how it's grown and all of that. They got kind of away from that format as time went on because the myths got so big and broad and just like all kinds of things. Like they did a Pirates of the Caribbean. They did a lot of pirate episodes. They did a Pirates oh, of the Caribbean ooh. episode. Okay. You know, you know where they have the, the ball and they're... Yeah they're hanging suspended yeah. can you swing it and then can you climb oh turns out it's plausible they had to get like Ooh. circus performers to help them do it oh my gosh it was the coolest though so, and of course adam was dressed like a pirate and talking like a pirate the whole time so it's hilarious like you need to see it okay anyway in general they would start the show by telling the myth and then they would decide how to test the myth and that Again, that process evolved over the course of the seasons of the show, right? Okay. Over time, they they really learned to control variables and break down myths into their component parts and test each one. So if you're testing a myth about if you drive a car through a pane of glass, will that kill the people holding the glass or will they walk away unscathed? Okay. Well, it depends on what kind of glass you use. Are you using tempered glass? Are you using like window pane, you know, just plain old glass? Like what, you know, mm -hmm. so they would test, you know, what are we really trying to figure out here? Well, is, is the glass going to make you bleed? And let's run a car through the glass, you know, like mm -hmm. that's, they, they really started to think about what is at the heart of each myth, right? Mm -hmm. 
almost as interesting as watching each episode is watching the whole series and seeing these two guys who are essentially special effects guys morphing into really good scientists and maybe underneath it all they were good scientists to begin with and the myth busting brought it out but you really can see the development of scientific thought and that kind of thing as the show progresses which for a science person like myself that part is is the best and it and it helped me think about problems in different ways too hmm. and we'll talk more about that next week okay but either way once they decide how they wanted to test it or what it would take or whatever whatever the myth was they would go about setting it all up if they needed a special location like the bomb range or special supplies like rocket fuel made out of candy um or whatever then they would just get all that they needed a lot of human skulls there was one episode where they needed they took a skull to a dentist and had him put a filling in it to see if you could get radio signals in your filling anyway a lot of weird (laughs) okay a lot of weird stuff Mm-hmm. So then they would like, because again, like, because you would also have to get people to help you. Because if you're testing the, can you outrun a fuse and stomp it out mm. before it gets to, you know, if you have a line of gunpowder, a la the cartoons, you know, Bugs Bunny cartoons, can you stomp out the gunpowder mm-hmm. and disrupt a fuse? You know, for things like that, you're going to have bomb experts. They had retired FBI agents and, and, because they were filming this in California, sometimes their filming would be stopped because there was a wildfire that broke out and they couldn't film that day. Mm-hmm. Like that happened. So, you know, they would have people there to help them be safe. And so right. they would get it all set up and in place. And then they just start running their tests, whatever they decided to test. Now, mm-hmm. at, again, as the show went on with these huge myths, it costs a lot of money to make them happen. And you might only have one shot, maybe two. So what they started doing, which was very smart, was doing small scale myths. So they would prove, here's the experiment we're going to run. Will it show us what we want it to show us? Yes mm-hmm. or no. And they kind of get a good idea if it was going to work out in large scale. But sometimes the scale mattered. So it would do something in full scale that it would not do in small scale. And that was like, it was mm-hmm. it was interesting when that happened. Yeah. So they're running their experiments and they're usually finding out that there's no way that the myth or the story or the claim can be true. A lot of the times the myth was just busted. It wasn't Mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. But then what they would do is they would go about figuring out what it would take to make it true. Mm. For example, can a catastrophic failure of a water heater destroy your house? Well, I hope not. No, because a normal functioning water heater will not explode and will not destroy your house because there are at least three levels of fail safes before you get there. But if somehow you manage to disable or compromise all of the safety fail safes, mm-hmm. it will explode and it will definitely destroy your house. And I hmm. highly recommend that episode. It's thrilling. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to know those things. It's thrilling. Oh, my no. water heater is super old and I don't want to think about it. There they had to do so much to to make it so that it would fail okay. that they were saying that's why it was they're saying we can replicate this because there's no way this would happen in real life. It's yes. in, it's improbable, I guess. If they couldn't prove it within the confines of the original story, then they would replicate the results, which was always fun. 
Now, once all is said and done, then at the end of the show, they gather around and they debrief if the myth is confirmed, if it's busted, whatever. In later seasons, they would add the option for plausible, which means it was something that they could do, but the circumstances that they needed to replicate it were very, again, very improbable. So this mm -hmm. could happen, but it's a very specific set of circumstances. It's difficult. Okay. And the show pretty much followed that general format for all 14 seasons. It didn't okay. really stray from that. That was kind of the, once they settled into that kind of formula, that's pretty much what it was. Okay. Now, Adam and Jamie weren't the only people who are recognizable from Mythbusters, the show from the Mythbuster years. Sometime in like the second or third season, there was kind of a second set of Mythbusters that began tackling myths with Adam and Jamie, and they were okay. known as the Build Team. There mm -hmm. have been several iterations of the Build Team. Different people have been on it, but the most well-known Build Team consisted of Tori Bollacci, Carrie Byron, and Grant Imahara. And so as the myths got bigger and more complex, Adam and Jamie would focus on one myth in the show, and the Build Team would focus on another one. At early days, they worked together on these things, mm -hmm. but then in later seasons, the build team was off doing one thing and Adam and Jamie were doing another. They could cover more. Okay. That that's, I watched a later season one because I was wondering that. About the build team? Yeah. Yeah. So okay. it started, they started out mostly as myth turns, like myth, myth busters, interns, myth turns. Oh. They were on oh. the show, but then like they worked well together and they were good on tv and they had the skills that made them good to work together gotcha. so that in general is a very broad description of the show and how it works mm -hmm. so in our next episode our, our season finale next week mm -hmm. brenna is going to cover the build team because the people on the build team were really important to the show and so you're going to share their bios and you know whatever you want about them mm -hmm. and then i'm going to talk about the science of Mythbusters, some of their, like, what's the best physics myth that they did? And, mm. you know, like, because we talk about all kinds of science here, and they sure. tested all kinds of science there. So there are definitely some episodes that for me stand out as, like, this is the episode to show your class to illustrate a certain point, because the discussion of the science is like chef's mooch here. <laughs> so, um, and then we'll also talk about culturally, how Mythbusters changed STEM. It changed how we think of science. It changes our approach to science. Um, and it even got people involved in science that never would have been involved in it had it oh. not been for Adam and Jamie, because there are lots of those people out there. So, hmm. so yeah, that's what we've got coming up next week. Okay. So your homework, everyone, is to just go watch all the episodes. Like, just go find them. They're so, they're funny. They're, they're, they're entertaining. I know, you got mad at me because you were like, you have to watch it before we talk about them. You do. And, and aren't you glad that you did? Did you, did you watch yeah. the banana peel episode, right? The which one? The banana peel episode. Uh-uh. I don't remember which one I told you to watch. Which one did you um, watch? You sent me the car bumper exploding off. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the archery thing. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So that's one I watched. Yeah. So, all right. Shall we do sources? Do we want to do sources today or do we want to do one time at the end of 
I'm good with doing them one time at the end next week. Okay. Yeah. Since the since the reference librarian is doing whatever she wants, you know, we can we can put it off. The reference librarian has no comment. Okay, that's fine. The reference librarian has had a rough go of life in March and April of 2023. Very specifically. Very specifically. Look, your kid didn't almost have to have surgery for uh, orbital cellulitis. That's true. You know, we had some big stuff. You did. She did not have to have the surgery. She is fine. Yeah, she is. Thanks. But it was still, it was still a moment. It was close. We were close. It was, it was a moment in time for sure. Anyway, so the reference librarian, she can have a pass. It's fine. The reference librarian will, when one day we'll pay her enough for her to do her job. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be good. That's, that's a goal for us to have. So those of you who want those references, go to Patreon and donate to the show so we can pay our reference librarian. Yeah, that's right. Post we get a few more subscribers to Patreon, then we can actually pay me like you know a dollar a month or something to do my sources. To do, and I'll to, do them. To simply copy and paste the sources mm-hmm. that we've already. Okay, assembled. in my defense, now when you send me your sources, you send them as the hyperlinks, within, which then don't show up as the actual URLs, which then makes it difficult because then I have to click on them, open them in a tab, copy that, and then paste it in. Well, you can blame Bill Gates for that or whoever is in charge of Windows you right now. You have the option when you paste to paste it as plain text and then it doesn't hyperlink it. I will paste it as plain text from now on. Right. Well, see. As if that will make a difference. Look, the reference library needs all the help she can get. But we also need some more Patreon subscribers if y'all want references because I just, I'm, I'm poor. We just need to know, we just need to know that you're out there paying attention. That's all. Yeah, you know. So we don't have anything to tease for next week because, no. you know, it's coming. We already so did. We already now. did. So next week we'll tease next season, though, because we've we've already set next our sixth season. So we'll give you a little that teaser about some of those. There's going to be some good ones I'm excited for. So. All right, then, until next time, live dangerously, do science. <laughs>